At the outset, I would like to congratulate Rajiv Malhotra for his path-breaking new book, Battle for Sanskrit. It's available outside. I hope you buy it and get it signed by him today because it's a very important and very interesting book. I'm going to come to um, some of the issues in a bit. But before that, I have to do, um, I have a message to convey to Rajiv Ji from Professor Kapil Kapoor. He was supposed to be here today to bless the book and its writer, to share anecdotes of their long friendship, and of course, to make you laugh, because had he been here, he would have you know, delivered a talk with, which would have occasioned many laughs. Uh, he's, he's unfortunately recovering from a severe bout of illness, and he's been ordered by his doctor to stay at home. So very reluctantly, he has remained away today. But he convey, conveys his best wishes to the author, and he hopes that the author's voice is ever louder. Okay. Now, I'm a little embarrassed to be speaking in this panel because everybody else here has been working in the area of Sanskrit and Sanskrit studies for several decades. I am but a student, and I speak here as a student, and I'm, I'm very honored to be here today. Now, I meant to actually talk about the overall importance of this book, not only to Sanskrit studies, but to what I call post-global studies. But because Rajivji, when he was talking, he said that he hoped, I would say also something about the decoupling of Kavya from Vedas, and in my opinion, from Shastras that uh, Professor Sheldon Pollock has, uh, has, has done in his work, and I wanted to share an anecdote in that context. However, I must tell you, I'm going to be brief overall so that we have a lot of time for question answers. The reason really why I came to the Natya Shastra, which is what my PhD is on, is very interesting. I came to JNU to do my master's from the, from the Department of English Studies. One of the things that Rajivji mentioned, that the task of political philology, it seems, has been to teach um, all civilizations how to break grand narratives. It, it, it is very interesting because in our context, it seemed to me when I read the Natya Shastra that we were breaking our own grand narratives from the get-go. And that's why I always give one example. Many of you from the Sanskrit center here will probably be familiar with this story from the Natya Shastra. In the first chapter of the Natya Shastra, initially, the whole uh, the theory of drama is built to be the fifth Veda. The moment you say fifth Veda, you, you confer a certain importance, a certain sacral centrality to a text. Now, it is said that uh, the fifth Veda, Natya, draws from the four other Vedas. So dialogue from Rig Veda, music from Samaveda, and so on. Now, the first chapter of Natya Shastra then goes on to record the first performance. So here is a text that has been articulated by Brahma to Bharata, who is a rishi. And Bharata and his uh, troop of hundred sons, they put up the first performance ever. The first performance is held on the occasion of Indra's flag festival. And it's held in the open. So all the devas have come to uh, come and they are part of the audience and and everybody is thrilled with the performance. So all the devas sort of, you know, they give gifts and offerings to the performers. 
Suddenly, after intermission, after halftime, suddenly they find that one by one the performers begin to faint. And then everyone is very surprised, the audience is very surprised. And then it is found out that this happens because the asuras, who are very unhappy with their portrayal in the play, have sent the vignas to disrupt the performance. So mind you, this is the first performance. It is backed by an authoritative text, let's say, the fifth Veda. And the very first performance is a flop. This is a fine instance of the puncturing of a grand narrative at the beginning. That is why I always say that, you know, when you move away from so much talk around Sanskrit to, to the texts, there are these things that you discover which then, you know, they, they completely change the way you begin to look at the tradition. So this is just one example that I wanted to give and say that the Shastras cannot be decoupled from the Kavyas and when looked at together, they open up the tradition to a much more rigorous inquiry. So that, now when I read, when I was reading Battle for Sanskrit, what I was really impressed with is that here is a book that for the first time challenges something that, that nobody seems to question, that we have all seemed to take for granted, which is the American age of academics. Now what post-colonialism did to Indology was you know, uh, was to question many of the many of the problems, many of the inbuilt structures of power and inequality that came with the white man translating the texts to the natives. You know, however, it it almost seems that because post-colonialism and its hyphenated existence links it to colonialism, it almost seems that post 1947, when we look at knowledge that is being produced elsewhere, we cease to bring. Uh, these same issues of politics and funding to bear upon this. And that is where uh, Rajivji has done great service. I'll just go on to talk about what I mean by this odd and personal coinage, post-global. In our concern with self-definition as a nation, in our critique of Marxist, or alternatively, of nationalist approaches to our history, we have failed to pay serious academic attention to the rise of the American appropriative model that has been a great force in shaping academics in the last few decades. This model has emerged hand in hand with globalization and through the unique combination of America's soft and hard power made itself the standard against which, against which everything elsewhere must be measured. Publish or perish, they say in the West. You must have heard that. So recently, during a NAC accreditation at a traditional Ved Vidyalaya, the examiners demanded to know the citation index of the teachers over there who teach the Vedas through the attested oral methods. You know, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's hardly ever called for how ridiculous it is. Unless translated in America by an American scholar, a text, whether a South Korean novel or an ancient Sanskrit kavya, cannot, it would seem, reach a wider global audience. And yet, the violence that the text might suffer in order to become that which a global Western audience might appreciate is a subject of silence 
and erasures. Even as a globalized labor market helped America get rid of its polluting industries, and its military interventions in other parts of the world kept its military industrial complex booming, its universities became ivory towers, attracting the best minds from the rest of the world, no doubt facilitated by the salubrious environs that were the result of the first and the might of the petrodollar backed by the latter. What Oxford and Cambridge were to Britain's colonial project, MIT and Harvard, and tens of other superb universities became for American neocolonialism. Both dissent and ascent were managed through a process of deep and clever interpolation. And yet, this appropriation of all narratives, whether religious or secular, whether in the humanities or the hard sciences, has not been contested in, ever, in any overarching way. The literature produced from American brand name institutions have not been studied self-reflexively in terms of either funding sources or authenticity. This is very important, and this is where Rajiv Malhotra, with Battle for Sanskrit, has effected a breakthrough in what I call post-global studies. The nexus between power and knowledge has always been a matter of concern, and yet strangely, the gaze is never reversed onto the American Academy. I must emphasize that in a free world, it is of course possible for anyone to say anything. But the problem is when this exchange happens only one way. It is possible, is it possible for a book that is a trenchant criticism of say, American history, to be written and published in India and effect changes at the highest levels in America? Unfortunately, the answer is a resounding negative. The Western world is completely closed to the idea of delegating ownership of its history and culture to others, while at the same instant taking ownership of everybody else's histories. Elsewhere I have written, you know, that it's almost as though this is a modern Noah's Ark, where the cultures in their original sites all die out because of the, you know, because of the dual impact of turbo capitalism and, and, you know, and English and globalization, in their sites, these cultures die out and they are preserved in the American cleansed form, what Rajivji was saying, in that cleansed, redeemed form in American libraries and laboratories. And this is something that we must resist, which is, this is why this book is so important. You must all read it and what, uh, what Rajivji does is that he says that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning and I think I speak for him when I say that disagreements, agreements, everything to this book will be an addition to this debate. The debate has been opened and I hope the Sanskrit Center in JNU takes a leading role in this. It is a pity that the battle for Sanskrit is being fought in English. I hope that 20 years from now, if if there is truly a renaissance, these debates can happen in Sanskrit. And we are not close to scholars from anywhere in the world, but they must also be willing to come and debate in Sanskrit. Okay, thank you.